0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Devin Brisky about the new book she co-authored with Johan Swinnen entitled Beeronomics, How Beer Explains the World. Devin, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Mark.
0: We're happy to have you on. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Something about myself. Well, I'm currently in Tucson, Arizona, visiting a friend... Um, and I'm under a blanket, so we get good sound for this audio. <laughs> audio interview. I also have a podcast called Religion and Socialism that I work on with the Democratic Socialists of America. So that's not beer related, but I <laughs> would throw it in there.
0: <laughs> so, what led you to write uh, this book? It seems like quite a, a uh, quite a leap from doing uh, you know that podcast to doing a book about beer.
1: Yeah, well, the podcast is just a hobby. Um, I So I had some background in food journalism, and uh, Professor Swinon contacted me, and he he actually knows my mother. They, uh, she works at Stanford, and he was a visiting professor there. And he had previously written an academic book about the economics of beer and done a lot of research on beer markets, and he wanted to turn it into kind of a popular read version for a more uh, mainstream audience, so I had a background in food journalism, and we made the connection and just decided to work on the project together. And we actually wrote most of the book five years ago. Um, that was the last time I was I was working on it full time, and since then it's just been like editing and updating because so much has happened in the beer world since then. <laughs> like acquisitions have happened every time i saw the news and it was like ab InBev, bev sab miller merger i'm like shoot that totally screws up that chapter like we have to write a big addendum that's like, <laughs> that's what that's been happening since then
0: I have to say that the, 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 that definitely doesn't come across in the book. It's, it, it's a very smooth process through uh, the history and development of, of the beer industry. It really was a fascinating read. Oh, thank you. You begin the book by explaining just how uh, central of a role beer has played throughout human history. And I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining a bit as to how far back beer goes and how it changed from its Early uh, years, as we know it through the records, through uh, what it became in the centuries that followed.
1: The history of beer is really the history of civilization. So you start to see that the earliest evidence we have of beer drinking is in early Mesopotamia in the Fertile Crescent, which is when people started moving to an agrarian planned agricultural economy. And one of the, the first beer is mentioned in the very earliest written work we ever have the epic of Gilgamesh and It's written as there is this sort of beast man uh, Enkidu and in the in the book he becomes a man and part of that process is drinking beer and becoming Unruly and that's actually the thing that civilizes him. So beer and civilization are very closely tied together mostly because of this connection it has to agriculture and moving towards a settled down planned economy. And you see that they drank beer in ancient Egypt. It was part of the grain economy there um, with the Nile and then throughout early Europe with the barbarians and the ancient Germanic tribes. And it's only when you see the, the first you see the great wine divide between the Greeks and the Romans and the Northern Europeans that drank beer. And it's interesting because the Greeks were actually the first um, the first civilization to grow grain but not ferment it into beer. They only drank wine. So, so, yeah, alcohol is very tied to civilization. And when you get into the Middle Ages, you start to see that it's also became a big way that governments had had power because the the governments that were most effective were the ones that figured out good taxation strategies, and alcohol was always taxed, so the taxation of alcohol was a big part of basically the economy and war in European history.
0: One of the points you make early in the book though is that this is not the beer that we are familiar with today at our supermarkets or our homebrew. It's a very different type of beer. And it played a very different role in diets back then.
1: Yeah. So in the first place that brew or the first organizations, I guess you could say in recorded history, that brewed beer on anything close to what we would consider scale are, were monasteries. And they were basically like, groups of guys that for some reason could not get married (laughs) and they would get to, and so their parents paid to have them join and they would brew massive amounts of beer and they drank massive amounts of beer. And they also, um, they would brew beers several times over. So the, the first brew would be the strongest and the, the lower brews would be the weakest beers. And those would be like ones they give to peasants and children. And it because the water was so bad then and they didn't have the modern science to understand why, they did understand that when it was brewed and fermented, that, that would it would be a hydrating, um, something that is hydrating that would not give them diseases.
0: You also pointed out that it was an important part of their uh, daily caloric content, that for a lot of them, it wasn't a supplement. It was actually part of of their, of their nutritional uh, intake.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was a very important, very important substance.
0: Now you mentioned the link with monasteries and how they get involved in this business. And one of the uh, threads in the book that you return to uh, at a very, at a couple points is how some of them are actually involved in this today. And that gets to this point that you make in the book about how, we're seeing in some ways this this very uh, dichotomous uh, development in the beer industry. I wonder if you could take us through that. Basically, how do we go from uh, what we might think of as home brewing, uh, these these monasteries brewing, where does the modern day beer industry come from in that respect?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because currently there's this real mystique around beer brewed in monasteries like trappist beer is exploding all around the world beer brewed in trappist monasteries in belgium and it's great but it's it's interesting because part of the mystique is this idea that this is the true craft beer and it's part of this ancient tradition and it's small batches and it's different from the budweiser or stella artois that are like these giant industrial lagers that craft beer people have come to frown upon and that's ironic because as i said before back in the day beer brewed in monasteries was actually like the the biggest scale brewing operations they had so yeah right now we're pretty much during the 20th century you saw or basically dating back to the 19th century with the industrial revolution um you saw all these technological developments that really, really changed the beer industry. So automated bottling, um, you know, the steam, the steam engine, transportation, innovation in, um, basically every aspect of the brewing, um, process. And as part of that, the, um, the, the dominant beer became locker, which is bottom fermented. And it, it was good industrially because you could brew it in large batches and it'd be clear and pure and simple. And people thought that was really great as opposed to ales, which were a lot more complicated and traditionally brewed by pub masters or cafe, you know, in small batches and communities around Europe and towns around Europe that, that really were usually people were working with what they had. Like they, they would, they would kind of, it was a craft in that they would really determine what they had and what they could do. And this, brew, this batch would be very different from that batch and nothing was standardized. So all that changed with the Industrial Revolution. And you start to see these massive, massive breweries brewing at scale in Europe and in the U.S. In the U.S. it was a lot more dramatic, though. And you see pretty much the market dominated in the early 1980s, 90 percent of the beer brewed in the US was brewed by a or Anheuser-Busch, now AB InBev, Miller or Coors, so three really recognizable locker brands. And in Europe there's also massive consolidation too, but just not on the same scale. There're still a lot more smaller breweries. And then since pretty much beginning in the 1990s, you start to see this change in the market structure where craft beer becomes a lot more popular and we're seeing that all around the world now and now there's this this sort of dual dual industry where there's the big at scale industrial lager brewers and then there're small craft breweries and then periodically there are shakeouts there was one in the late 90s and then there also there's a trend of um the large-scale industrial brewers buying the small craft brewers when they reach a certain scale and using them to kind of bolster their own, because they see it as an emerging marketplace and something that they really need to be tapped into, that they need for their own growth. The the popularity of that industrial lager is falling in the traditionally beer-drinking countries. Meanwhile, it's actually growing in non-traditional beer-drinking countries like China and Brazil.
0: It's interesting how the move toward industrial brewed lagers reflected different priorities back then because when you see that in the 19th and early 20th centuries as you describe in the book it there the beer could be a very questionable quality you could get a great brew you could get a bad brew and it was really hit or miss there was no real metric of of, of judging it so in that sense industrial brews provided a consistent quality as you describe and nowadays it's we, we tend to you know people that would, would, we don't longer have to worry about that sense of that this you know might be foul tasting. There's much more a sense of that that's the more attractive brew, whereas previously it was the more off-putting one.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you see this in Belgium. Belgium was such an incredible place to live and learn about the culture there because beer is such a huge part of the culture. And it's really interesting because I think right now people really think about Belgium as like the place with the best beer in the world. And the beer there is just t- the highest quality, and they have UNESCO World Heritage um, recognition for the heritage that they have with their brews. But ironically, during the twenty during the twentieth century, so lager, which is a German style and is the basically the Budweiser and the Stella Artois, um,
0: was introduced
1: there during World War One during German occupation, and um, it quickly became bear, like preferable to the really small batch styles that were traditional, and every single little village had their own unique style and their own unique flavors and spices and way of doing things. And it just grew to totally dominate the country. And during the course of researching this book, I actually I met this man named Frank Boone. He was one of my favorite characters. He, and he talks about how basically when he was growing up, this um it was stella artois had grown to be huge and they saw they were like it's it's like a christmas star it's you know yellow it's like it's so clear and fresh and totally standardized it's the same thing you always know what you're getting that's so different from like the cafe and the random guy down the street that's brewing a kind of different batch every single time and he had the exact opposite reaction which is like no like we must preserve these these styles that are just part of our heritage and they're so unique and they're so specific to Belgium and in specifically like little little towns like the town of Hogarden with their white beer with the you know the cinnamon or the and the orange and so he actually bought a brewery from these two really old people Rene Witz and his sister and they ran it all by hand and it was the style of beer was making this um goose, which is the spontaneous fermentation beer, so it's it's very it's aged and it 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 basically you don't have standardized yeast that you use. it's not like a clean process. it's like it ferments based on the yeast in the air, so it's very tied to the place so and he says his uncle worked at Stella Artois, and he said to him like you think that this, like, you're gonna invest in this beer? Like, these are dying. Like, they're gonna be over. Like, Stella is the future. Like, there's only gonna be lager. And he, and he just didn't care. And him and a couple other people really worked to preserve these styles. And their big innovation was that they said, "I'm not going," because all the breweries were basically saying, "Okay, we need to make this beer cheaper and cut corners to compete with Stella because they are brewing at scale and they could brew it a lot cheaper." And um, he said, no, I'm going to make it really high quality. I'm going to use the best ingredients and I'm going to charge a lot of money. And he struggled for a while and now his goose is like shipped worldwide. He says he still has this tiny brewery in Limbique, Belgium, and he's like shipping beer to Japan and Costa Rica. Like he's a completely global business with a really high end (laughs) prestige (laughs) beer. And there's so many stories like that in Belgium of just people deciding, like, we really need to preserve these styles.
0: That story there explained is not just unique to Belgium. As you explain, you see that trend in the United States as well, how uh, as the beer industry expanded, especially after Probi- uh, Prohibition came to an end, that a lot of these small brewers tried to make that, uh, make you know, were engaged in that ultimately failed effort to try to one up the big brewers in terms of advertising and how it didn't work for them. So they ended up going out of business. Mm-hmm. But then as you described with the craft brewers, the, the resurgence uh, in uh, the nineteen seven in the 1980s, and 1990s, it, as you explained, it has a lot to do with the idea that beer consumption isn't going up, but people wanted better beer.
1: They wanted more variety. Yeah. They were sick of lager. You know, they had, it's, and there, there are other changes too. It wasn't just that. It was actually a change in taxation policy. Um, we can all thank Jimmy Carter <laughs> for for changing the way that breweries were taxed in a way that benefited smaller breweries. <laughs> um, so there was that. And then there was also another big factor was actually the, um, just the the advertising market so one one of the the main reason why the u.s consolidated at a rate that you didn't see anywhere else in the world in terms of just a massive shakeout and the number of breweries just plummeting and all of our beer from these massive macro breweries that were by far the biggest in the world um is because we is because of the television advertising market. so beer was very tied to sports in their advertising in the way they marketed in the US. So prior to television bre- small local breweries would, Basically, advertise by sponsoring minor league baseball teams and doing, you know, being, and it's still, it's still beer, the beer market in the US is very tied to sports markets. So you turn on Sunday night football and every single commercial is about beer. And the way, and when there is a shift to television advertising, the potential people that you could reach through one ad really favored these breweries that were able to brew at scale so the ads became cheaper per per customer that they could potentially reach and we've compared the the way the consolidation in the US happened to the way it happened in Europe and a lot of it has to do with the television average the spread of television advertising and TV being a lot more regulated in Europe and especially Germany where the consolidation was not not anywhere close to what happened in the U S it was on the lower end of things.
0: You mentioned that how that played a factor in that you didn't see as much commercial advertising in television. So (laughs) you just simply, there wasn't as much of an opportunity for large brewers to monopolize advertising and to basically drown out the smaller ones.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just, it really had to do with the cost per viewer. So If you are a brewery and you can supply, you know, a town of like 50,000 people and then there's one brewer over that can supply, you know, a town, like a city of a million people, then you're if you're advertising. if, If the main way to reach your audience is through television advertising and that's how people are consuming sports and that's you see that that sort of connection, then it's it's like the cost per unit, is going to be a lot ch- cheaper for the larger brewery. It's a, advertising economies at scale, basically.
0: You mentioned that a, a factor in the rise of craft breweries in the United States were changes in, in some of the tax laws at the federal level. I was wondering if you could uh, expand upon that and talk about some of the other factors at play in terms of why craft brewery has enjoyed such a resurgence and what that says about our, our changing habits of beer consumption within the United States.
1: Yeah, well, as I mentioned before, um, television ads, this sort of decline in television as the main way to reach viewers or reach an audience has played a big role. Like, I think that the social media you see, there's like a fragmenting of a lot of industries right now. It's not just alcohol, but it's it's like that that – T- trend towards the the massive at scale industry that reaches a lot of viewers at the same time is is on the decline in in a lot of different industries. But um, let's see. The other changes were just a a, a growing desire for variety. Um, as people's incomes rise, they they want greater variety. Um, and in the U S for a long time, like the only beers that were even really available were the, the three, the big three, those yeah. are, I think are the two main factors in the tax law. And, and also, I guess I I should say just a, a shift in strategy from small be, be, brewers, like I said before. So the first brewer who really identified this was this guy named Fritz Maytag, who is actually heir to the Maytag washing machine fortune. And so he had some money to invest. This is in San Francisco, I think in the 70s. I need to check my numbers. So he basically, he went to Stanford and he he identified a business opportunity, which is, he says, like you mentioned before, all of the smaller brewers were saying, we need to compete with Budweiser. We're going to cut corners. We're going to get cheaper. We're going to try and compete with them on price. And he said, no, that's that's the wrong tactic. The only way to compete with them is to compete, is to differentiate yourself So he bought a very old brewery that's actually down the street from where I grew up called Anchor Brewery. It's um, just a very old local brewery in California, and it produced a beer called Steam Beer, which is a a style of beer native to California. Um, And Anchor Steam, if you heard of it, this is where I'm going. He was really the first one to identify, like, I'm going to use the best ingredients. I'm going to make this beer really high quality and people are going to pay more. And it, it, it grew into it was like what it was pretty much the first modern craft beer in America in in recent history because it grew in popularity because it was different and it was higher end from the Budweiser Miller Coors. And it was from California and it, it was able to differentiate itself. And so he kind of he kind of established the model for success that all the craft breweries would later follow like Lagunitas and New Belgium and the ones that really went on to be successful.
0: You describe how the larger brewers were responding to some of these same trends in the 70s and 80s with trying to develop higher end beers, you mentioned, for example, Michelob. You also mentioned, uh, and 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 how there were some imports, namely Low and Brown, Heineken. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but I, I thought it was especially fascinating how they the, this failed attempt to try to bring in high quality European beer and how they just fell flat on their face and what that said about attitudes and expectations about beer during what turns to, out to be, in retrospect, this very pivotal turning point in terms of the beer market
1: yeah so basically for just for background um basically some of the the uh the early attempts of the big three to compete were these super premium beers like Michelob which were higher end than your standard Budweiser but basically were created by the same people and um they're in the 80s the two biggest uh Imports to the U.S. were Heineken and Lowenbrow. And you might be wondering, Lowenbrow, that's weird. I've never heard of them. They were once as big as Heineken in the U.S. And they they had like single digit, all of imports were I think like 3% market share. I forget the exact number um, in the U.S. at this point. So it was tiny. But yeah, they, they started, they began to grow in popularity in the 80s. And what happened was Miller was like, oh, we want to get in on this. Let's compete with Heineken. So they they basically established a, a licensing arrangement with Lohenbrow, but they brewed it in the U.S. in contract brewing. And um, for those of you, for those listeners who really know their German history, um, Germans have this law called the Reinheitsgebot, which is... Dates back to in Munich, 1487. It was just the um, the anniversary this year of this law that basically says there can be three ingredients in beer: water, barley, and hops. This is for um, this is for bottom fermenting, not so they, there can be top there can be top fermenting wheat beers. That's like an exception, but um, so basically it the and the Germans are really serious about their purity law like they they don't they don't stand for so miller was basically advertising low and brow as being brewed in accordance with these high quality german standards but actually it was being brewed in the u.s using adjuncts like um corn to make it lighter and ab in or back then it was Anheuser-Busch. Now it's AVMBEV, and called them out on it and basically made it a huge publicity scandal and nightmare for them. And people started calling it Miller Brow and it just they it just plummeted. And so I guess it really showed that the U. S. and and I think that you still see the roots of it today because compared to other other places in the U. S. there's like a real sensitivity about calling beer imported if it's contract brewed. Um, like you're not allowed to advertise it as imported, like fosters, it's Australian for beer. They are contract brewed in Canada and shipped to the U S so they can call themselves imported because for some reason this it's like the U S is the only place in the world that has this kind of mystique around imported as, as a high a quality indicator. But yeah, the origins of that, I think you can see in the, the Miller brow fiasco
0: it also points to why they end up uh taking uh buying out these craft breweries is because they it seems like they need that 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 cachet that credibility because it, their efforts to establish on their own haven't been very successful so far
1: no yeah they yeah they definitely do they need a yeah and it's it's funny because there's just people like i read blogs and people get so so upset about <laughs> about this. and it's it's kind of like I look at it and I'm like, this is basic economics. Like do you think that the craft breweries before were you know had, I mean, obviously they cared about the quality, but they also were trying to make money. And so are the big breweries. but they're yeah, in the us, I think there's this real real kind of paranoia and also this um, this desire for authenticity? That is is somewhat unique to hear.
0: As you mentioned, beer drinking in the United States, in, in some respects, has, has plateaued, but you still see beer drinking expanding globally. You t- uh, talk in your book about how it's expanding, as you've already mentioned, in in uh, uh, China and, and Brazil. Russia was an especially interesting case, though, because, uh, as you described in the book, we we had this. That its tradition of vodka drinking and how that had survived uh, it well in uh, well through the communist era, and yet today they're becoming the, these major beer consumers. What exactly happened there, and what does that say about this interaction between economics and consumption that makes such an important theme of your book?
1: Well, Russia is a really interesting story, and the the, the researcher who um, who did the research behind that chapter would be the first to tell you that looking into the history of alcohol in Russia is actually very sad because <laughs> it's very tied to mortality and like basically very people dying very young. And it's, um it's because they have this, this tradition of spirits drinking and vodka drinking. And basically after, after the wall came down in 1989, there was this, Huge increase in the number of deaths and life expectancy for men went down to like 59 It was crazy and it, it was a really volatile time in many ways. Like the economy Was undergoing a massive shift in the government, but but part of that was just the, the increase in mortality So they basically said, okay We're in this new capitalist economy. We need to figure out the rules alcohol We can't allow advertising for alcohol on TV because it's, you know, and as I said before, it's like incredible. It was one of the biggest things that surprised me writing this book was, again, how how much that the advertising in the media markets affect our consumption habits. And so what happened in Russia was they said you can't allow advertising for alcohol on TV, but beer was not officially categorized as alcohol because it's alcohol content was so low, even out like Baltica Russian beer. It's like 8%. And I think it was under 10% is technically not alcohol. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so they didn't, they didn't allow, they be the breweries really took advantage of this and they were able to you saw this massive increase in beer drinking just right at that point. And there, there are other factors, too. Like in, During that time, there was a lot of uh, foreign direct investment in the supply chains. Um, so there were a lot of companies that came into the former Eastern Bloc and basically said, like, these are going to be important mar- markets. And they bought breweries there. And then they said, oh, we actually need to focus on the entire supply chain. And they invested a lot in barley farms. And um, they basically made a lot of quality improvements. So there are other factors, but TV was really the big one. And then you saw a kind of a network effect where once a critical mass of people started drinking beer, it it really it became a habit for people. And there there are also some kind of funny components to this where um, some of the breweries that were were taking advantage of this this opportune thing would put out ads they didn't want they thought like Russian people wouldn't respond well to like beer that they thought was like coming from the west and into russia so they they created these ads that basically said like Beer drinking was Russia's thing all along, and the West <laughs> kind of stole it from us, and we're bringing it back. It's actually like this ancient Russian thing, <laughs> which is not true, <laughs> but that yeah feel is- like a like a hockey st- like a hockey stick of like really low beer and then it just explodes. I think it's ninety four probably have to double check that date. And then it once once they basically took away the TV loophole, it like there's a brief decline, and then it kind of plateaus in Russia. But it's still it's one of the biggest beer markets because it's such a big country, and for and it and it really did explode during that point.
0: And you you were alluding uh, just there to something else you mentioned earlier, which is this just how much beer has come to be not a local or regional or even national uh, thing anymore, but it really is now very much of a global thing. How you have with these consolidations, what you might think of as your national beer or your local craft beer is actually part of this beer conglomerate that has a presence, not just in different countries, but, but in different continents.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, beer, it's like beer really lends itself to just massive scale because it's, it's you know it has very high fixed costs and very low marginal costs so that always you know that's why you see it it, it really in a big industrialization or it really it was really affected by the industrial revolution and then yeah it, it became a, a now the biggest the beer conglomerates are um like AB InBev is just massive it <laughs> brews like it's like unless you are it's you see this dual market structure where you have these giants and then you have these small craft breweries that are potentially eventually acquired by the giants, is what happened with Heineken and Lagunitas.
0: Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Uh, so right now I work uh, for Vox Media with a V, V-O-X. Um, I'm actually on their conferences team, so I work with Recode produce code conference so it like focus on the tech sector and how tech is influencing commerce and media do
0: you have any books in the works
1: no <laughs> I, just, I think this might be my only book
0: <laughs> oh i certainly hope not <laughs> to be totally
1: honest i just yeah it was it was a lot of work
0: <laughs> well Devin, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us about your book i hope you have a wonderful day
1: thank you